This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. This is a Business Radio special presentation from the floor of the 2019 Wharton People Analytics Conference, where the industry's brightest minds get together and share how they're making the best decisions about their employees. Here's your host, Cade Massey. Hello and welcome to the 2019 Wharton People Analytics Conference. I am your host, Cade Massey. I'm also co-host of Wharton Moneyball here on the channel. And I'm a faculty co-director of this conference, the Wharton People Analytics Conference. Over the next hour, I'm going to sit down with four interesting and accomplished guests to discuss their respective work. We've drugged them away from the conference. We're on the floor here as guests and participants and program speakers mill about. We're pulling them aside, sit down, talk about their work, their experience at the conference, why they're here. Should be a fun hour. Coming up next, delighted to be joined by Daniel Coyle. Dan is a best-selling author. He's also a contributing editor at Outside Magazine. He wrote The Culture Code. Culture Code was named the best business book of 2018 by Bloomberg, BookPal, and Business Insider. He has a number of other books as well, including The Talent Code, Secret Race, The Little Book of Talent. And he works as a special advisor to his local pro team, one of the best-run organizations in professional sports, the Cleveland Indians. Dan, thanks for stepping away, man. Thanks for having me, Kate. It's good to be here with you. Tell me, why why are you here? There's too much cool stuff happening here, and I, I, got, the, I got the honor of being in, the, in the, this panel that is, you know, this is a conference about precision and about measurement, and the title of the panel I'm on is, is, is the vaguest title that maybe has ever happened at this conference. <laughs> it's called Fostering High Performance. Mm, Three right. vague words that add up to a really interesting like black box right. to explore. And there's some really cool people that uh, you guys put together to explore with. Well, I think to some extent that's what you've been writing about, you know, maybe your whole career. Yeah. So what, what, how do you feel prepared to talk about this panel with these guys? So you're, you're going to, let's be specific, you're talking to Meg Popovic of the Toronto Maple Leafs and CeCe Clark of the Cleveland Indians. Both of those are in, they're in high performance or sometimes yeah. called player development within yep. their organizations. What do you think you bring to that conversation? Why are, why are you the right moderator for that panel? Well, I've spent the last 15 years sort of digging into this area, you know, sort of flying over this landscape. And what's interesting about Meg and Cece, what they bring, is they're, they've been living deeply in this landscape. Uh, they're sort of like the Lewis and Clark in this big continent of high performance. What it's really like on the ground to deal with world-class high performers and how do you nurture them, maintain them, and help them get better. Um, so when, you I've say, been look, yeah. when you say the Lewis Clark, that, that implies that it's relatively new frontier. That yeah. they're, they're pioneers in some sense. In what way are Meg and Cece pioneers in this well, they are, they are women in field, two fields that have been traditionally incredibly masculine and incredibly traditional, too. Yep. So they bring a fresh perspective, a new set of eyes to look at this thing. So the way they build relationships is different. The way they make culture is different. The mm-hmm. things they notice are different. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for this audience that's keenly interested in, in continuing to explore that landscape, I think their point of view is just totally fascinating. Mm-hmm. What are you interested in? You know, you've done a lot of work in this area, but now you yeah. have to sit down with a couple of practitioners. What are you interested in hearing from them. I want to hear. I want them to sort of talk about their skill sets. They're athletes in a way, mm-hmm. right? They're relationship athletes. They're communication athletes, and so I want to understand that skill set better. Mm-hmm. And I think other people do too. How do they? What do they do in the first ten seconds of meeting somebody? Mm-hmm. How do they build relationships with athletes who are like? Think of a really touchy thoroughbred horse. I know you're a horse person, right? Mm-hmm. They're they're born to run. They're born to perform. There there's a there, there's a there's a standoffishness and an aloofness to being a pro athlete. Uh, and at risk also. I mean, you don't want to be vulnerable. 
necessarily. If you get cut, if you show weakness, right. everything's at risk. And right. so how do they operate in that landscape? That's a super interesting skill set. It's a terrifically interesting analogy because there are horse people and there are horse whisperers. Hmm. And there are those who either by nature or by years of experience understand how to approach and work with horses in a way that someone else might get a very different reaction out of the same animal. Yeah. Um, so to, that's a nice insight into one of the important skills in that job because you're, you're trying to get these guys, as you say, to be vulnerable and open up. And the whole field is real. I mean, you know, what did player development look like in baseball 50 years ago? You took a bucket of balls, you rolled it out, and you said, go get them. Exactly. That's it, right? Exactly. And now ba- I feel like baseball is further along than the other sports mm-hmm. on player development. Maybe because they're, it's so obviously that, that it's so obviously mental the mental game is such a big part of it. Mm-hmm. But you've got more teams doing, investing in these people to do player development high performance in that sport than in other sports. Other sports right. are catching up slowly, yep. but baseball's out there up front. So uh, you've got experience with the Cleveland Indians. How long has that been going on? How did it get started? This is the sixth year, and it started kind of very randomly. I wrote a, a book called The Talent Code, which is about how individuals get better, and a couple coaches happened to read it, and they turned to the back flap and it said, that I spent a good part of my year in Cleveland Heights, Ohio. And uh, so I got an, got an email one day from a mm-hmm. couple of coaches there. Came in, talked to him, came in, talked to him again. And I love baseball. I, I grew up in Alaska. Always wanted to be a, mm-hmm. always wanted to be a ball player. Never did. Uh, not, a, not a lot of baseball in Alaska. Is there's, there? How there's, does that work? There are zero major league players <laughs> who've ever come from Alaska. Okay. And when I got to high school, I was being struck out by kids who had grown up in Alaska. Mm-hmm. So it was pretty clear that I didn't have a path. But Say, yeah. <laughs> right. This reminds me of hitting on a, on a, on a you, you go to a baseball park and like hit, hit off the batting machine or throw at the radar mm-hmm. gun. Yeah. And you can only throw like 55, 60 miles an hour and you think, well, dang, that's slow. But then you go to the 60-mile-an-hour batting machine, and you can't hit it either. Yeah, so as slow as you throw, you can, you can strike yourself out. It's humbling. So there was a – who was the great basketball player for Duke that came out of Alaska? Trajan Langdon. Trajan Langdon. Yeah, yeah. he went okay. to my high school. Oh, yeah. really? Yeah. Well, how many high schools are there in Alaska? Yeah, there's six in Anchorage. <laughs> okay. Yeah. All right. Okay, so you grew up that way with baseball. Yep. So how did you react whenever you got this note from the coaches at the Indians? Oh, I was – I couldn't have been more excited about it, and – and there, it sort of caught us both at this moment. As a writer, I work by myself a lot, and I'm always exploring stuff by myself. And there's this organization of really switched-on, intellectual, curious leaders. Indians are amazing. They're amazing. And so I, I felt that. It's like, I want to be a part of something here. This is neat. And then I think they felt, uh, going the other way, hey, they've had their sort of guardrails up, but focused on the sport. And then they realized, wait a minute, there's all kinds of connections. The kind of connections that get created at a place like this um, there's all kinds of things we can learn from other organizations and from different ways of thinking about talent. And the, the tradition in baseball is so strong. And the example that I always think about is, is in batting practice. You know, every team has batting practice right before the game, and they have a guy our age throw 60 miles an hour, yeah, yeah. and everybody hits home runs. Yeah. And, and to walk up to that and say, hey, I'll bet that makes you feel comfortable. But does that make you better? Mm-hmm. That's a question that actually is a powerful question in baseball right, right. now. And so they've, they've been doing it that way for 75 years. Babe Ruth did it that way, yeah. Cade. Like, why should we keep okay, doing there it that you go. way? Right. right. So this is the kind of organization that's up for asking these questions, challenging conventional wisdom, and importantly, looking outside the building for yeah. interest and, and perspective that's different. That's why um, they're here. Yeah. Well, yeah, exactly. The Indians are here. They sent three people, one of the program, and three participants to yeah. come in and soak this stuff up, and it's not their first year. What's something you've learned from them? Well, I, I think 
I really learned a lot about culture from them. And I, while I was writing the culture book, I was visiting, you know, Pixar, Seals Team 6, um, San Antonio Spurs, other places. I never wrote about my experiences with the Indians there because I like to sort of keep my writing and my advisory work separately. But uh, I, really, I really learned how powerful tensions can be when you talk about them. I think there's a tendency in organizations that I always thought like, oh, you should try to avoid tensions. And it turns out absolutely not. You know, if you can find them, name them, create conversations around them, make them really clear. And the example that, you know, we sort of had with the Indians is this tension between innovation and tradition. As an organization, small market team, if we do it like the Yankees do it, we're going to lose. We have to innovate. Mm -hmm. At the same time, there's a tremendous amount of value in, in knowing how baseball players have been trained, and we have a lot of smart, older coaches. So rather than having people divide and let that tension rule you and let people divide up into those camps, I'm a traditional coach, I'm an innovative coach, we say, look, we have to innovate through tradition. You know, we, have to, we have to do both. And by making that really clear from the very top and making that, that tension goes from being a negative to being a pillar and a, and a, place, to have, a, a place to have a conversation around. Mm-hmm. It seems like that is a great idea if the organization can handle it. So yeah. what, what have you seen in the way that they actually can manage that tension in a conversation about it? Because I can imagine in some organizations you raise the fundamental tension and things kind of blow up. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I think the things that they do, uh, they put psychological safety first. They Psychological safety. Now, yeah. I know some folks in this conference yep. understand this concept. What is this concept? It's a concept that when you know, that we have this spot deep in our brains that is always monitoring whether or not we share a future with the people we're around and whether or not there's authentic connection. And there's, as I wrote about in my book quite a bit, but the, the, the idea is basically that a few small belonging cues can make a massive difference. Belonging cues. Belonging What's an cues. example of a belonging cue? Belonging cue, it can be... It can be it can be facial. It can be body expression. It can be a clear signal. It can be questions. It can be a clear signal that we share a future, that I care, um, that I'm invested in your success. Mm-hmm. And the best example of that is this Wipro experiment that I write about, a call center that did a one-hour intervention where they took a new group of trainees, divided them into two. Half of them got traditional training. Half of them got uh, a one-hour intervention where they, instead of being told about the company, they simply flipped it. And they said, they asked the new trainee, tell me about your best day. Tell me about your worst day. If we were on a desert island, what would you bring to the survival? And um, that was it. Three simple questions, three simple belonging cues that sent the signal, hey, we share a future. I'm, I care about your success. I'm interested. And so that little moment is something that lights up our brains in a different mm-hmm. way. And when we think about places where we feel safe, that's what we're getting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So this is a concept that came up on the program yesterday, actually, just hmm. kind of in passing. Because, you know, people come to this conference from many different perspectives. You sat here for, you know, part of the last 24 hours. Yeah. What have you seen or heard that has caught your attention and might want more inquiry or what has resonated with you? I thought the conversation with Marcus Buckingham was really interesting. The particular thing I took away uh, was the notion of potential as one way of thinking about thinking about where people are and what their future is. And the other idea of momentum. I think there's something really interesting there, this idea that... We, right now, we reflexively talk about people as high potential, low potential. That turns into a label that can have negative consequences. Mm-hmm. And there people really, that may be true. Maybe people do have high potential and low potential. But it's, it's smarter to sort of shift the nuance a little bit and say, let's talk about people's momentum. Let's talk about the angle of attack that they've got. Let's talk about the speed which they're moving in their career. Let's talk about the, 
the, the sort of vector of their curiosity. Mm-hmm. And that, mm-hmm. that idea of momentum, I think, is a really powerful one that I'm going to take. It, 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 I'm trying to understand the source of your enthusiasm for that, because I get it, but mm-hmm. I think it's meaningful to me that you react to that so strongly. Yeah. It, it basically, is that you're, you're, the entire conversation then is couched in some intrinsically positive term. So momentum is positive and forward-moving, but it does come in different flavors. And so we can, we can differentiate those that are, you know, in one direction versus another. Yep. One is a little more steep than another. Yep. But it's all couched in terms of momentum. Is that part of the appeal? That's part of it. And the, and the deeper part of it is that momentum is a state and potential is a trait. My momentum can change. I, I, it gives me a little more control. That mental model of it gives me more control. Got it. Got the it. word potential, when you say, Dan is low potential, it's yeah. like, oh, man. Got it. That's Got it. tough. Got so. It. Got to get it. That's the difference. Okay, final question then. What is your momentum, Dan, mm. as a rider? Mm. What, what, what comes next for you? That's a, that's a very nice way to ask that question, Kate. <laughs> I'm super interested in narrative, super interested in story, like the power of story to kind of guide perception, guide belief, and drive improvement. I think a lot of our efforts to improve, which conferences like this are built around, are doomed to failure. There's a lot of great information out there, and we all sit here and nod and say, yes, we're going to change. But it's really hard to change unless you kind of change the narrative. And so I'm really interested in that. That sounds promising. That's exciting. Dan, thank you for taking the time. Wish you the best with the conference. Wish you the best with your work. Thanks, Kate. Appreciate you it. Bet. Author Dan Coyle. Rolling in here now, our second guest. We're delighted to have Eva Murray join us. Eva is just off the stage. She was presenting about half an hour ago. Gave a talk on building community, analytics community, her Expertise, I would say, is in data visualization, analytics and data visualization. She works for Exasol. She's with, she leads the business intelligence team at Exasol. We'll find out a little bit more about that. And she has a couple of interesting ventures, including a new book called Makeover Monday, which we want to hear about. Eva, thank you for being here. Welcome. Thank you for having me, Kate. And thanks for being at the conference. We, we were delighted to identify you as someone who would be a, a real addition to the program. And appreciate your flying over. You're in Nuremberg, Germany, if yes, I'm not mistaken. Right. Yeah. Appreciate your making the trip. So just as a little bit of background, can you tell us about how you were trained and how you came to work for Exosol and what does Exosol do? Yeah, so my background is actually psychology, HR. That's what I did at university. But I went through Deloitte's um, consulting program mm-hmm. and ended up in IT consulting, which eventually led me down the path of analytics and then joined Exosol about almost three years ago now mm-hmm. um, to actually lead that Tableau evangelism. So helping Tableau people. evangelism. Yes. So tell, yes. some listeners may not know what Tableau is. Yes. Tell us what that is. Yeah, so Tableau is a data visualization tool focusing on visual analytics, and it lets you work really easily with your data. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the customers that use Exasol actually also use Tableau. So my job is to help them make the most of those two pieces of software. Okay. Tell us more about Exasol then. Yeah, so Exasol is an analytic database, and it empowers your analytics beyond just pure performance so we add performance we make everything faster at huge data volumes but we also allow people to do data science directly in the database to integrate with a lot of their other tools and really sit in their um, in the analytics environment and help them do more with their data can you give us a use case just to make it real like give us an example of a company and how they're using Exasol. yeah so there's actually a um, a champions league soccer club over in europe that is using Exasol to do live analytics during the game, uh, to do live reporting to their coaching staff of what's happening. But they also use it. So, so this is where the, the real-time analytics comes in. But they also use it to analyze real large data volumes pre- and post-match when they bring in 
GPS and tracking data mm -hmm. to really understand what's going on with their players, what's the formation on the on the pitch, mm -hmm. um, and what's their competition doing. Mm -hmm. So you said a team from the Champions League. So those move around a little bit, but there are some teams that are always in there. Are you able to tell us who it is? You may not be able to tell us. I might not be, but I can say it's a French team. <laughs> it's, a <laughs> <laughs> it's a safe legal protection there, but we might know who you're talking about. We'll let that one go. So that's kind of fun. That I, I think this may be a new part of your work. Is that right? Have you had much exposure with these guys yet? What's it like working with a Champions League soccer team in Europe? It's pretty cool. Um, it's it's exciting for me because, it, it, yeah, definitely for us at Exosol, that's a new area we're exploring. And um, building up a sports analytics program is now my, my new job as part of my role. It's so, a fun job. Yeah, yeah, working with this club, but also others that are now knocking on our door and saying, mm -hmm. hey, we, we want to do this too. What's an example you've learned of something you've learned so far from working with those guys? So as you go out to build this part of your portfolio, you're trying to understand how can we better serve these sports teams as a new kind of client. So you're probably all ears as you spend time with this French team. So what's something you've learned? Actually, um, in talking to them, but also talking to others, I've learned to understand it's not just about the quantitative analytics that they're doing, but also the qualitative. So player attitudes and those kind of things. So is the player going to show up on Monday for the training? And is he ready to go? Uh, did, he, did he have a big night out the night before? Okay, hold on. But how does Exercise help with that? Well, we don't yet, but we can then work with them to see what data could they actually use to, to analyze, to get a better understanding of that. Okay. Um, and, and we could be the platform for that. But I, I also want to see more of a holistic picture. So we can definitely fit into the quantitative, all the things that are measurable, ticket sales, smart stadiums, and all of that kind of technology side of it. But what other questions are are on their minds. Mm -hmm. So that's something I want to understand because that also forms part of it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It makes sense. Okay, I'd like to hear a little bit more about the book and in particular this venture you've had for the last few years called Makeover Monday. It's fascinating in multiple respects. So can you tell us what Makeover Monday is? Yeah, Makeover Monday is a social data project that is run via social media, via Twitter, by um, my friend and co-author Andy Kriebel and myself. And it's a project where every week we publish a poor data visualization we find out there in the wild. A poor data visualization. Yeah. You so find one in the world and say, this is not so great. Yes. Do you get permission from people before you use them? or do you just, Well, eh. they're all in the public play space anyway. Okay. So this could be published on a website, some chart. And we just, <laughs> just take it from there and say, here's the article, read the article. Here's also a visualization. And we've actually never had anyone complain. Even when we tag people, they're like, hey, this is great. You know, show uh, us what you can right. do. Okay. Yeah. So we give our community this visualization and we say here's also the data that comes with it create something better tell okay. a better data story yeah. reinvent this okay. in a way looking at best practices and we have this whole community now of how, tell me about the size of the community and how's it grown over time yeah so we had um, in the beginning it was a few people doing this regularly every week a few like literally like a few. literally a couple, it's you a couple you and some of your colleagues yeah okay and um but now it's grown we have about four and a half thousand people in total who've participated along the way okay. unique unique people and every week we have between 100 and 200 submissions so okay. these are the regulars then some new people coming in some might be dropping out um but we have about 100 to 200 participations every week so you basically start a thread on Twitter, and so if you want to participate, you get the data, and then you start posting your stuff, and you watch what other people post, and you comment on people's, this is the way it goes? Yeah, definitely, and so we we do a weekly webinar to provide feedback, simply because commenting on every tweet is just not 
possible for us. Right. Um, but we do encourage others to comment on each other's work because our word isn't gospel and others know stuff as well. Mm-hmm. So we say, you know, if, if you have something to say about someone's visualization, give them some feedback or encouragement or whatever it may be. And so there is this conversation that's ongoing and we use the hashtag Makeover Monday. Okay. And um, yeah, it's, it's grown and it's, it's very dynamic. We have a lot of new people joining us. But pretty much every week, and it's really exciting. You could, probably you could do this as a, as a spectator as well. You could, if you don't want to necessarily one week you know, create new visualizations, but you want to see what other people create, you can learn a lot from that, I'm guessing. But is there, a, is there like a time frame? So they have an hour to do this, two hours? They, by 6 p.m., everyone's done, and now we're going to start commenting? How does it work? So we don't give people a deadline. We say you don't have to do more than 60 minutes. If that's all you can commit to, that's perfectly fine. Okay. Just try to do something within that time frame. But some people really want to spend a lot of time because they want to do something spectacular, and that's great too. Mm-hmm. Um, but we also don't say it has to be done on a Monday. Uh, our weekly rhythm doesn't change. So we publish the data on a Sunday because by, the ti- by that time in Australia, it's already Monday. Okay. Um, and most participants publish their work on Monday, Tuesday. Um, on a Friday, we do a recap blog post to uh, show the favorites of the week. I see. And then it starts again. So I typically, see. we've moved on, but some people can, you know, they can submit late, so to speak. Got it. Okay. So when did this start? And how, So at this point, you have a year and a half, two years, coming up on two years worth of data and experience? There's actually, so um, Andy started it as a little oh. practice by himself first, okay. and then he was joined by another person in 2016, and they okay. ran it for a year together. Then the other person dropped out, and I joined. So okay. since 2017, we've run it together as a project, grown it as well. And you thought, at this point, with this much data, you've got something to say that, that might be worthwhile in book form. And so, as you know, in analytics, we're often challenged to present our work in the most persuasive way possible. So this seems like an incredibly valuable book. And I can imagine no better way to learn than to do this many iterations and to do them in community where you are getting feedback but also giving feedback. It challenges you to articulate. You've probably learned something about your own predilections. Um, So I'm curious, what patterns, what themes... You, this must be like the chapters in the book, but like, what are the themes you've seen in the feedback you've been giving? I imagine it's like grading papers in a way. It's like the same stuff kind of comes up over and over again. And then there are some nice little wrinkles here and there. I'm guessing. Yeah, there's definitely themes coming out over and over again. And we package them as lessons learned in the book. So yep. we have actual technical lessons around data visualization best practices. Yep. We also highlight the community and a lot of their work in, in our book. Um, and a lot of the themes that we've noticed is the overuse of color. So people just go a little bit crazy with colors. <laughs> and we tell them, actually, try and remove all color until the end and then only use color to highlight what you're trying to say. Highlight Um, the things that are important for your message. Okay. Um, Also, simplification. So people often just add too much and we say, hey, just tone it down. Like, cut cut out all the non-essentials. Okay. Um, The the, the chart clutter or chart junk when we have extra lines and and labels, etc. So, yeah, yeah, so, so those are some of the themes and also showing the analysis. So not just creating a visualization, but really showing that they've analyzed the data, they've learned something from it and sharing their insights on the page. So what, what might that look like? What do you mean by that? Yeah, so what I mean is when you have a chart, to not just have the data visualized in a colorful bar chart, but actually to say, hey, this bar means this. So having annotations on the page, having okay. subtitles and working with that, working with labels and num- yep. large numbers to really make it obvious. Okay, so the three things you've just said to me, which are the three off the top of your head, which means something. One, dial back the color. 
And in particular, maybe start with no color and then bring color in to accent things. The second thing you said was make it as simple as possible. And in some ways, that's like remove information until you just get down to the minimum necessary to convey. And then the third thing you said is go ahead and tell your story explicitly, like annotate, label, put the titles. Don't make people go to the work of coming up with it themselves, I'm guessing. So these are the three of the main themes. And it's only very wise prescriptions for people doing data analysis yes i would say that's something that you'll you know if you check those boxes you're probably on a good on a good path okay so i might have guessed that you would have thought you would have known those at a time so if we if we'd have asked you you know two years ago 2017 eva what is your advice for people doing data analysis you might have come up with those three maybe what is something you've learned through this experience that you you think now is more important than you would have ahead of time or maybe you don't think is as important as you used to think it was I actually think the showing you analysis is really essential because tools like Tableau and others make it so easy for people to work with data and to visualize it. But then if this forms the basis of management decision-making, it really needs to be substantiated with solid analysis. Mm -hmm. So I don't want people to just visualize it because they can, but really Mm -hmm. put some more thinking in it. Okay. Okay, last question. What do you find hard in your own data visualization work right now? Like what's your frontier your personal frontier and what you're trying to get better at i would say the the real storytelling so making creating different charts and connecting them and then using a really effective design for it to flow down the page and for it to look really good like an infographic style mm-hmm. approach i would love to be able to do that better mm-hmm. okay terrific listen eva thank you especially coming right off the stage thank you for joining us thank you for being here at the conference we wish you the best with your work and enjoy the rest of the conference thanks for having me That has been the first half hour of our special. Come back and join us after the break. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.